0: Our title today is Preaching Peace in the Church of Christ. And even though uh, the word church doesn't appear here, it is a central concept and idea here. Paul talks about, uh, and you can see the outline in our bulletin, Which uh, goes through this this recollection of the transition, the, the, the radical transformation that has taken place. At one time you were separated from Christ, without hope, without God. But now, in Christ Jesus, brought near by the blood of Christ and reconciled to God. So then no longer looking forward... We are now built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so what I want to see here, brothers and sisters, is that as Paul unpacks this corporate aspect of the gospel, that that individual aspect, more individual aspect, I should say, that we saw last week, we often think of in America, right, as as being born again, like this individual experience, right? That actually takes place through the churchly reality. They're talking about the same thing. Now, you might have heard the old saying in Washington, D.C. Everyone's entitled to their own opinion but not your own facts. Um, Increasingly, this statement seems a little out of date. Seems like we're all working with our own facts now. Um, And this is uh, one of the many things that we can lament, right, about this age of polarization in which we live. And I don't even want to talk about political polarization or Washington, D.C., really. It's not that interesting. But what about our cultural polarization? What about the different worlds we inhabit? Oh, you're a city dweller. Oh, you live in a, in a rural or a suburban place, right? We have these red states and blue states. I mean, I've been to most, a lot of these states, maybe 40, some of them. And they're not different colors, right? They're all states, And we have so little understanding of one another. We wonder if we can sit down and even have a conversation about what we disagree about. And we might despair over this circumstance and wonder what to do to fix it. But there is perhaps a silver lining of this polarization. Maybe just a little bit, it can help us understand The great divide we see in the pages of the New Testament. That great divide between Jew and Gentile. Who inhabited really totally different worlds. Had different facts about the world in which they lived. A different sense of a creator God. Or gods of the creation. A different sense of spiritual truth and reality. A different sense of morality. It may be that. Our polarization today, which presents to our perception these two radically opposed cultural expressions of what it means to live the good life, right? Maybe that can help us understand a little bit better the amazing power of God's grace. The transformative power of the gospel that is able to unite people of such disparate beliefs. Backgrounds, histories, cultures, ethnicities into one holy Catholic church. Maybe that polarization can give us a sense that the gospel isn't just a a club, you know, the church isn't just a, a voluntary society. We join clubs, you know, maybe you're you're a Rotarian, maybe you're in the garden club, right? Oh, I also go to church. No. The church is a new creation. And when God creates, he creates ex nihilo, from nothing. He speaks things into existence. The power of his word creates something that didn't exist before. And that's what Ezekiel's passage, we didn't read the first part of that chapter, right? The first part of that chapter that was about dead bones, a pile of dead bones. And God said, make them live. And he's like, okay, I'm a prophet, but I'm not that good of a prophet, right? He's like, no, preach. My spirit will move over those bones. That's new creation. So I want to look at at, at this uh, retelling of the gospel truth that we heard last week in the first part of chapter 2. In its corporate fullness. That's what Paul's doing. He's sending a message. He's repeating himself. He's like, this is a six point sermon. Point one, two, three. Point one, two, three. Right? He says the same exact message. What you were, what Christ did, what you are. Same thing. But now it's through this corporate relational lens. And first we see there, he says, Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, remember that you were separated from Christ. This is a powerful description of unbelief. And I want to ask you, maybe, um, you know, do you remember? Do you remember being without Christ in the world? Now, Paul has a certain advantage in this argument in that he's writing about 20 years after Jesus died and rose again. So virtually everyone in the church has probably come to faith as an adult. Everyone, almost everyone, and certainly all the Gentiles can remember before they knew about Christ. We don't have that benefit. Many of us probably grew up in Christian homes. That's a wonderful thing. But then we have to use, as it were, our our moral imagination, our our sense of creativity. Do you remember? Do you remember being hopeless? Maybe not utterly hopeless. Um, I don't know if you've ever had a kid, you know, had a school assignment, paper. You know, they have to write and they're up against the time. And they throw up their hands they say, this is hopeless. I don't have a chance of finishing this assignment. Maybe that was you at work last week. But do you remember being hopeless? I mean, I do. I remember going to bed and saying, God, help me solve this problem. I don't know the way forward. So what Paul is encouraging his church to do here is not only to reflect Last week, like he did on the sinful nature, right? That you were children of wrath, pursuing the prince of the power of the world. You're caught up in the the spirit of this age. Now he's asking them, not not to define what they were apart from Christ, but he's asking them to remember the experience. Not only a time of personal deadness and spiritual death, but the most heinous segregation, discrimination. He uses the word hostility here. We like to think that racism is gradually leaving our society, that we've made progress, and we have. We've made huge progress, right? In in the memory of some adults, elderly folks in this room, perhaps. You might remember in our childhood when segregation was explicit, when there were signs over water coolers in parts of our country, where there were implicit hard barriers to jobs and progress and education based on merely physical characteristics. But of course we know, sadly, when we look out at the hostility of the world, the warfare, the fights, the vitriol, I mean, thank you, Mr. Twitter, right? Like... We have more hostility, at least expressed via pixels on the internet, than we could have imagined 20 years ago. It doesn't go away. Because you see, there's a relationship. There's a relationship between the nature, the sin nature, which is fundamental to our fallen state, and the relational brokenness. We can't fix it. We can't fix it with policies. We can't fix it with progress. We can't fix it with technology. Some of our technology is making it worse. And here Paul points to circumcision, right? And it's so interesting what he does. He says, you Gentiles in the flesh. Now for Paul, in the flesh doesn't just mean like the material stuff. Flesh has a negative connotation. It's the the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's the world in rebellion. And so he's he's emphasizing that aspect of their history. He's saying in the flesh. But then he talks about this fleshly characteristic, the so-called circumcision. And you were so-called circumcision by those who were so-called, or I'm sorry, uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. And he says this thing is just done with your hands in your flesh. It's a surgery. It's a procedure. They had people, some of the Jews, who kind of wanted to you know, advance in Greek society around this time. You know, the Romans, they did these public bathing things. And so the fact that they were Jews was pretty readily apparent to all the other men in the room. And so they had, they had a reversal procedure. They had an, an uncircumcision procedure in the ancient world, if you imagine that. It's just in the flesh. And Paul says, Oh, you love to talk about how you're different, don't you? You love to talk about the differences, the so-called differences. In Colossians, sister epistle to this, Paul talks about circumcision, spiritual circumcision. And he uses the opposite word there. He says, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Your hearts were circumcised. That's the one that matters. And so Paul is angry here. He's upset that these different parties in the church are trying to say who's more spiritual, who's more special, who's more holy. And he's addressing the Gentiles in particular, not letting the Jews off the hook. But he says, remember, and it's in their recent memory. Remember, he, he probably brought some of these people to faith seven, ten years ago. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. These five things, there are are five things he describes here. Separated, alienated, strangers, hopeless, godless. They all hang together. I don't think they are five different things. This is what it means to not have Christ. Now maybe if you can't remember... Maybe if you were born and baptized as a child, praise be to God. Maybe you think about this, oh, whatever. I know plenty of people aren't Christians. They seem happy. We need to remember, brothers and sisters, there is no hope in this world apart from Christ. It's true. It's true. Our world is spinning crazily now, Chaotically. Think of the violence. There were 12 shootings in Southeast D.C. on Friday night. 12 shootings in one quadrant. The worst quadrant, arguably, crime-wise. Think of the violence and the chaos, the nihilism of our society. Why? Because they're hopeless. The world doesn't make sense. It doesn't parse without a creator God, without a redeemer. And this hopelessness leads to despair. These five things, it's really remarkable. We need to pause here and see something else that's quite amazing about the way Paul thinks. I know some people um, this is kind of a little bit more higher level reflection, but you know some people talk about like systematic theology. You write these long systems of theology, Thomas Aquinas. John Calvin, you know, these big books. What? what a, I don't want systematic theology. I just want biblical theology. Just give me the Bible, right? Now, there's a place for both of them. But Paul here is being a systematic theologian. Paul here is being a covenant theologian. Notice what he says. You are strangers to the covenants of promise. He's talking about the Old Testament covenants. And he's saying the heart of these covenants, going back to the garden, going back to Abraham... Going back to David and Moses, the heart was God's promise. What kind of promise? Promise of what? Of a Messiah. Because, again, these things are equivalencies. They mean the same thing. To be a stranger of the Old Testament covenants is to be without Christ. The Old Testament covenants brought Christ to Old Testament saints. There's no difference. It's not a different promise. Paul sees it all as one promise. Fulfilled now gloriously in Christ. And so when he says, using a, a, a political metaphor, you had no citizenship status. We kind of debate this politically a little bit today, right? How should we deal with resident aliens? How should we deal with aliens who are undocumented, who are break the law and entering the border illicitly? I could have a fight about what I called them, right? I've probably used all the wrong words for different groups. Paul says, you were all illegal aliens. You were all dwelling in the land, undocumented, with no rights, no privileges, no protections. And that's Christ. The commonwealth of Israel was the commonwealth of Jesus Christ, promised Jesus Christ coming. King David was just keeping the seat warm for the real king. He was a type in shadow. Not two different promises. One promise. One commonwealth. One reality. And now that they have Christ, what's the corollary? Now that they have Christ, they are citizens of Israel. That's exactly what, what Peter will call them, a kingdom of priests, Right? Now that they have Christ, they are children of the covenant. They've been grafted into Abraham's promises. They're Abraham's children by faith. Now that they have Christ, they have hope. Not in this world. Not in prosperity. Paul's rotting in prison. He is in chains. But he's full of hope. His hope is in that risen Christ... Brothers and sisters, as we reflect on this passage, I want you to try to think about it a little bit, of course, obviously. Because, because if, if this doesn't describe us, and if we're members of Jesus Christ, none of this describes us anymore. You might feel some of these things now. There might be a, a hangover, as it were, right, of this former life. Because the old man still clings to you. But none of this is true of you anymore. So the first thing we should do is be grateful. Thank God that this doesn't describe you. But the other thing we should do here with this point is to be compassionate. We use the wealth and the privilege of living, you know, in the top fraction of a fraction of the top 1% of human history in terms of wealthy, luxurious people ever to live on this planet. And we use it to fill the emptiness in our souls, to fill the hopelessness with stuff, with cars, with privilege, Your friends and neighbors, your colleagues at work, they're hopeless. We don't mean this to denigrate them. We're all in the same place. This world is really, as our catechism called it this morning, a veil of tears. So we need to remember and be grateful, right? We need to have compassion and be grateful that there but for the grace of God go I. And brothers and sisters, we need to tend to our faith and care for it. As we talk about the church today and through this book of Ephesians, this epistle, the church helps keep us in the faith. People fall out of faith, you know. I'm not talking about God's divine election, but I don't know God's mind. I know that you all profess faith today, those of you who have come into membership of this church. But I know that people leave the church if we don't care for our faith if we don't nurture it, if we don't build ourselves into a community to support us, none of us stands alone. We can go back to this. There's a warning here as well. And this brings us to our second point. How how have things changed? Why is the world different now? Why are our relationships different? How have these Gentiles, think of the most polarized subset of our society today been brought together with the polar opposite to join into the most beautiful harmonious communion where people sing together and pray together and break bread together. How did that happen? Paul says, verse 13, but now in Christ, just like he did, remember, but God being rich in mercy in verse 4. Now in verse 13, the pivot, but now in Christ Jesus You who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. All of these blessings, Paul again and again and again, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. It's in Christ that this has been changed. And the blood of Christ. Paul preaches Christ crucified. In chapter 1, we saw that we have redemption through his blood. And these are people, by the way, I once spoke at a, A teaching conference in India. It was a weekend. Like I flew forever to talk for 30 minutes. But there were people in the conference who would go home and see blood sacrifices. Animal sacrifices. Today. Right? And that's what Paul's talking about. These people all saw sacrifices constantly. The temple of Artemis Ephesia was right down the road. And he's saying, no, this is the blood of Christ. Once... One and done. Once and for all. Reconciliation. Peace. The blood of Christ changes us relationally. It removes our sin. It washes us away. So that redemption. The idea that it has purchased us out of bondage. Right? But what does he focus on here? Being reconciled. Here he's talking about a different aspect of the blood of Christ. It removes barriers. It breaks down walls of hostility. Jesus was in the construction industry. He built walls. He probably had to tear down some old ones too. You take down an old building that's fallen apart. You rebuild it. Use the stones to to make a new one. And here we see that the blood of Christ. Breaks down a barrier. Between sinners. And what an amazing word here. He himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. Grace and peace is Paul's opening benediction to us, right? It's our worship opening every Sunday. And Christ is our peace. Christ is the way and the truth and the life. These abstract things, right? Jesus says, I am life. And Paul now says he is peace. Abstract reality becomes concrete in Christ. He is the wisdom of God in the flesh and he is our peace. How is he our peace? He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances. Now that's a mouthful, but it's really kind of the beating heart and soul of this passage. Paul uh, repeats this idea a number of times in this passage in verse 15. One new man in the place of two, so making peace. That is the peacemaking work. He takes what was two and he turns it into one. Reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Verse 16. Verse 18. Though we were both have access in one spirit. And this is why we read that passage from Ezekiel today. After God brings the dry bones back to life. Why? Why does he bring dry bones back to life? Not just so people can run around again and have fun. The second part of Ezekiel 37, a different kind of hostility, but just as big and just as serious, was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And that's Ezekiel's context. We have the the Israel of Judah and the Israel of Joseph, Ephraim. And they're at civil war for hundreds of years. And Ezekiel says, these two sticks, write a name on one and a name on the other one, and they'll become one stick. It's like a magic trick. But it's God." work of recreation. And now we see that Israel was divided between north and south. And Ezekiel prophesied in chapter 37 not about Israel being divided but about humanity being divided. Because that's fulfilled in the New Testament. In the distinction we had with Gentiles, with races and ethnicities and cultures that hate each other, being united in one new humanity. Listen to the words of the prophet. And I will join... With it, the stick of Judah. And I'll make them one stick, that they may be one. And I'll make them one nation. That's, remember, he keeps talking about the Messiah here. He's talking about our new king, our heavenly king in Christ. And one king shall be king over them all. And they shall no longer be two nations, no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things. See, what Paul is saying when he says that they're godless, they would say, we're not godless. We have our idols. I was born with this idol. I have this ancestor god. I've, you know. He says, no, those aren't gods. (laughs) And they shall be my people and I will be their god. And as he says later in this passage that comes home again in Ephesians, he will dwell with them. That's how we're united when God dwells with us. God doesn't tolerate sin in his midst. He is holy. He makes holy. And when he comes and dwells with us, if we dwell in the presence of God, we're going to dwell together in peace because he'll make us holy. I love this image of of breaking down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Every time I preach on this idea or this concept, I always go to the the Wikipedia machine, you know. And there's a stone. I think it was discovered in 1890, an inscription from the Jerusalem temple. And this inscription from the Jerusalem temple, which has been discovered, there are actually two versions of it, um, says in Greek, so the Greeks can understand it, let no foreigner enter within the parapet and the partition which surrounds the temple precincts. Anyone caught violating will be held accountable for his ensuing death, death penalty. For Greeks who couldn't go into the temple of God in Jerusalem. You know, it's interesting in, in Matthew 9 and 10 when Jesus calls the 12 to him for the first time. He sends them out, right? This is old covenant, still old covenant. He says, go to the sheep. Go to the sheep of Israel. They're sheep without a shepherd. He has compassion for the crowds, So he says, but don't go to the Gentiles. Who thought that Jesus was such a segregationist? I thought Jesus loved everyone. Jesus is speaking from the perspective of the Old Testament. Not yet, not yet. Don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans. Now, now, however, as we'll see in the next chapter, this inscription might as well, it's a big rock, but it might as well have been taken up to the cross and shattered into pieces, because the inscription, which said that it was death to any Greek who enter, entered the temple precincts, is shattered. Isn't it fascinating that Paul is imprisoned in Rome because he is accused in Acts 21 of bringing Greeks into the temple? Paul's in prison for breaking this law. It wasn't true. That was the accusation made against him just because he loved the Gentiles and preached the gospel to them. But they said, he's blowing everything up. He's destroying the Jewish religion. We have to kill this man. And he appeals to Rome. And when he writes to the Colossians about the same time he's writing this letter, he says, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Sound familiar? It's the same concept of ideas. God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? How did he make us alive? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He canceled this record and he set it aside. And Paul says he nailed it to the cross. There was a document, a death warrant for all of us. And it was nailed to the cross in the flesh of Christ. Graphic image. I still remember when my dad called me and said, a couple years before he died, Brian, I just made the last payment on the house. (laughs) Had a mortgage burning party, right? He didn't owe the bank anymore. He couldn't be thrown into a debtor's prison. We all know that's not going to happen. But you get the picture. We can be bound by the law. We are all bound under God's law. And Jesus destroyed it. He nailed it to the cross. And when he did this, those who were far off were brought near. Two have been made one. We all have access in one spirit to the Father. It's a common gospel. Brothers and sisters, if we confess our sin and receive the grace of Christ, we can't hate each other. Yeah, we might frustrate each other. We might have disagreements. We might tussle and fight. But we have to come to a place of love with one another because we're all sinners before the cross. This is the unified new creation that Paul's talking about. He says he's creating in himself one new humanity. I think the ESV says one new man, and that's all right. That's what the Greek says. But don't get hung up on the gender thing here, right? One new humanity from two in the place of two. He's uniting all things in Christ. Because we're in Christ, and if two people are in Christ, we're united to each other. Just think for a minute as you look out at the world. Maybe you're hopeless today. Hate won't win, division won't win, tearing down, destruction won't win, darkness has been defeated. We have this victory now in Christ Jesus. We have this precious, precious hope through the gospel. And third and finally, this is really the theme that's going to fill the rest of the epistle. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And there are a lot of metaphors all piled on top of each other. First of all, we're fellow citizens. Psalm 84, which we sang, actually Psalm 87, talks about, look, this one from Philistia, this one from Egypt, they were all born in the heavenly Zion. We all have birthright citizenship in the heavenly Zion. Then he talks about a family. We are members of the household of God. We are adopted in love, as he said in chapter 1. And finally, we are stones in a building, a structure, a dwelling place for God. A temple that is growing, maturing. We see the same image in 1 Peter. And when you see two different apostles using the same image, you know that that it it is a core part of the good news of the New Testament church. 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to Him... A living stone, that's Jesus, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. God will dwell with his people. He says that in Ezekiel, which is, I think, throughout the background here for Paul. He dwells within us as we are built together into a house. And he he knits us together. He's the mortar. We're individual stones, crooked, flawed, wrong. Couldn't build a wall out of us. But with Christ as the cornerstone and the Spirit as the mortar, the church is a beautiful, precious, spotless bride. Neither the gospel nor the new life we receive in Christ promises us peace in this world. Again, Paul's writing from prison. Probably to people who are doubting and struggling in their faith. But this is a new creation. In chapter 5, he'll talk about the church a lot when he talks about marriage. And that's another place, right, where two become one. In marriage, we were meant for two to become one flesh. I'm looking at the married couples here. You all know how difficult this is. You all know that it never becomes fully realized in this fallen world. But God says, with his creative power, you are one. Love your wife like she is your own flesh. And as that metaphor of how Christ loved the church like his very own body should encourage and feed and nourish husbands to sacrifice themselves for their wives and for wives too to love their husbands... So, too, by analogy, we should all love each other in the church, right? We're all one flesh in Christ. That's the power of what Paul's teaching in this epistle. Very practically, in closing, be grateful, brothers and sisters. Remember what God has done for you in Christ through the blood of the cross. Second, have compassion, pray for the lost. Recount their names right now, friends and neighbors, family members. It's hard to think of God's wrath against sin and judgment. But it's a part of the gospel. Hold them in your minds and pray for them. Pray that you could show the hope of Christ to them. And finally, brothers and sisters, love your church. Love your church. Join her. Pray for her. Serve her. Bear one another's burdens. It's a great gift we have in Christ. Let's pray. Merciful God and Father, we crawl broken, weak to this table, but you have for us powerful food, strength-giving, nourishing food and drink. Help us to consume this healthy diet. That we might love and serve one another as befits individual parts of one body. And that we might lift up and hold high and give honor and praise to our head and King, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.